Well, hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the podcast from all of us at Stay Forth Designs. We're glad to have you with us. It's early in the year. Many of you are pushing into your goals and rhythms and trying to make progress and really improve upon last year. Because let's face it, last year was a dumpster fire. Now, before we jump into our conversation, I want to invite you one last time before Monday to join us for our five-day jumpstart. It's free to attend. It'll help you find more productivity more momentum and find more fulfillment in 2021 so that you can do more of the right things instead of all of the things because it is possible for you to control your schedule instead of it controlling you to register for free head over to focus.rightsideupleader.com forward slash jumpstart or because that's a huge mouthful to fill and i get it you can click the link in the show notes below so before we move into our episode today i want to warn you that the conversation is real We're going to have a very clear, blunt, to-the-point conversation with some amazing folks over at the Exodus Road who do hard work and needed work to raise awareness, empower the vulnerable, and free individuals from the bondages of human trafficking and sex slavery. So I don't really want to say enjoy this episode, but I really want you to listen to it. Now, on to Alan's eye-opening conversation with the folks over at the Exodus Road on today's episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. Well, Matt, thanks for jumping on the podcast today. Absolutely, Alan. Thanks for having me. And you guys do incredible work at the Exodus Road. I'm going to have you share uh, about what you guys are doing. Um, quick warning to those who are listening. Uh, this episode is going to get real. This is a real issue in the world. We're going to talk um, blatantly about this, very clearly about this issue um, of sex trafficking and even sex slavery around the world. And so, Matt, I just want to start by saying what an incredible ministry you guys have. Honored to have you on here today uh, just to share your story. But where did that start? Can you take us back to that first moment when you realized this is an issue in our world and I want to be part of it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for the introduction. So, my wife and I, my wife Laura and I, we have three kids, three teenagers now, but if you reel the tape back uh, a decade, we were really moved um, in our calling to move to Thailand and run this children's home, uh, which had really been on my heart for a while. I was a youth pastor before that and had drug teenagers all around the world serving the poor. And I just had fallen in love with the poor. I mean, that's the simplest way to say it. I, I wanted to be on the front lines of serving the poor. And my wife did as well. And it was during that season in my life where youth ministry, I'd been doing that for almost a decade, maybe just over a decade. And, and I was ready for the next ministry challenge. You know, I was ready for God to, to give me something new. And it's interesting. And I'll just note this here because I know we have a lot of uh, people listening who are kingdom minded and leading ministries themselves. Uh, I had a great career as a youth pastor. I kind of outlasted most youth pastors. You know, I've been doing it for maybe 12 years uh, since I was 18 up until I was like 32, something like that, on and off. And um, I was really ready to lay that down. But when you approach the Lord and you're like, hey, God, I'm ready to to have some new adventure. What is that going to be? And you enter into this really kind of a dark place where you're just so desperate for something new you want to lay down what he's currently given you to do, but it's just not the right time. He's doing something. He's doing something in your heart. And uh, he held me in that place for over a year, um, which doesn't maybe sound like that long for most of us, but 
But as you're, you know, this young man wanting to serve the kingdom of God, you're like, put me in play coach, you know, Um, that can be a very, very interesting time and it can be lonely. And so I just want to encourage everybody who's listening that if that's where you're at, God has not forgotten you and he is up to good. And that that place of stillness and waiting uh, requires just as much faith, if not more faith than the action phase. Uh, when God delivers you into this next chapter. So for me, I found myself in that place. I was a youth pastor, was feeling God's call to something else. He wasn't cluing me into what it was. And through a series of miraculous events, um, I find myself being offered an opportunity to move my family to Northern Thailand to run a children's home, which was totally in line with my passions and my heart. And we totally took that leap after a year of waiting. And here's the real funny part. Uh, we did that move, you know, drug my three kids, my beautiful wife to, to Northern Thailand to love on this, this group of impoverished girls in a children's home um, and to minister to them. And for about a year, I thought I had made the worst mistake in my life. Really? And I did not speak Thai yet. I was threatened uh, by the government with two uh, prison sentences for something really benign, like there was a well at the children's home that wasn't registered properly. So they were, I was getting letters uh, threatening prison uh, sentences for my illegal activity. I was thrust into this leadership role <laughs> in Northern Thailand within a year. Uh, that first year was just awful. And I felt a little bit like I'd been waiting for a year to call me, for God to call me into something new. I feel like I received a call and I, and I take steps in faith towards that, raise the support like missionaries do. And then I felt like I'd made the worst mistake of my life. And so that's really the beginning <laughs> of my story into human trafficking. It wasn't a, out of a place of strength. It wasn't out of a place of, of what you would typically consider to be that, you know, God, you know, lined the, paved the road with gold and it was all beautiful and perfect. No, it was treacherous. And, and I often tell people this journey for my wife and I has been uncharted waters, um, treacherous. And there's very few people who have helped us lead the way through. There's very few people who knew the way. So we found ourselves in this area of Northern Thailand. I'm rebuilding the infrastructure of this children's home, which uh, was illegal in certain areas. And so I had to learn a ton about Thai law. I had to learn a lot about foundation management in a foreign country. I had to learn Thai. Um, and this is the thing that God was doing. He was preparing me um, to rescue victims of human trafficking. I had no clue. When I moved to Thailand, I hadn't heard of human trafficking. I didn't know anything about it. But I was running this children's home. There's 48 uh, girls, minors, all minor girls from the Hill Tribes uh, region in the north of Chiang Mai. So on the borders of Myanmar and Laos, um, these girls were living in these village communities. And they were, they were basically subsistence farmers, uh, mostly rice. And I heard this rumor in the community while trying to stay out of prison and trying to to do a good job in the, for the kingdom with these girls. I heard this rumor. It was so disruptive to me that there were men from the major cities of Thailand, like Chiang Mai, but, but really even Bangkok and beyond, that would drive to these village communities, these marginalized uh, people groups, and they would offer jobs, employment, um, 
but but only to the the beautiful girls, the the kids, the young girls. That was the rumor in the community. And then, of course, the girls would be put into a vehicle and trafficked to a major city uh, and then sold into prostitution or forced prostitution. So these girls thought that they were going to take a job in Bangkok and their families would be really excited about that. You know, like, hey, this is a good opportunity for my daughter. We're, we're farmers. We don't have a lot of money and there's no opportunity. Let's send our children off with this guy, this broker, who's, you know, telling us stories of great employment. And our daughters can work in a, in a hotel or, or a restaurant, and it's going to be a legitimate good job for them for their future. That, that's the promise that these traffickers were selling to these farmers, these impoverished farmers. Uh, only then to, for their daughters to be sold into forced prostitution and, or, you know, a lot of those families would never hear from their daughters again. So that rumor, that's a bad rumor, right? I mean, that's disruptive. And here I am running a children's home full of, of young girls. And so it just, I felt compelled to do a little digging. And so I drove up to the village communities and I started to interview the village pastors about this rumor that I'd heard. And they all confirmed uh, the rumor that, yes, uh, we have guys drive up into our village in trucks and they offer jobs, but just to the pretty girls. In fact, they told me uh, a lot of these tribes were Lisu, which is Chinese um, heritage. And they were saying, you know, we actually have a saying here in the village that there are no pretty girls here. Um, with this implication that they're all farmed out to the major cities. Wow. So that that's the first time the concept of systematic trafficking came on my radar as, as an individual. Um, and God had plans for me and my wife that we could not know, could not have guessed, would never have dreamed, and probably wouldn't have chosen. <laughs> wow. Uh, isn't it funny how God does that? So yeah. we, we started to meet with law enforcement. Uh, there in, in Region 5 in Chiang Mai, where we were living, and just just to kind of learn and consult with them. And ultimately, uh, they asked me to conduct some research on a, on a working group with a few other NGOs uh, or charities. And I did that for about a year. We did research about human trafficking. And I was learning about these mechanisms of labor migration and uh, promises of, of jobs that didn't exist. And they were luring these impoverished typically uneducated individuals into this mechanism of rape for profit. You know, how can we get these girls away from their nuclear family, put them out on, you know, put them under an amount of duress and threat so they won't run away. Um, and there's several really disgusting and horrible torture type mechanisms that traffickers use to make girls compliant so that they don't try to run away. The law enforcement in the communities are oftentimes corrupt and involved in this racket. And so uh, cops are oftentimes underpaid as well and, and easy to manipulate. And they, they take bribes to protect this type of criminal activity. And so even if a girl runs away, uh, most of the time law enforcement will bring them back to the brothel mm. uh, oftentimes. So th this is kind of the stage I'm setting for you. <laughs> of the problems we began to discover that, that in, in our time, in our day and age right now, 
there's an estimated 40.8 million modern day slaves in the world. Uh, it's a problem that every country has. <clears throat> and I was, so sure, I was so shocked to hear that. It's like, geez, that is a ton of people. How is this even possible? And, and I've really come to believe it's because the good men and women of the world uh, are, are kind of behind our, our, our high walls and white picket fences, behind our nice homes and closed doors. And we're, we're protecting our own family, but we're really ignoring the poverty that exists on the other side of our white picket fence. Um, we've built this separation between us, the church, and the poor. And you, you look at church history, and, and especially here in, in our modern American church, we're constantly trying to figure out how to do both, you know, how to protect our wealth, but also, well, in our own spirituality, our own purity, we want to kind of remain these great icons of, of Jesus follower Christians, but also somehow go into the slums of the world and get our hands dirty, loving the vulnerable. And in some ways, I think those, that equation is, is broken because it's difficult to do both. Um, and so what we started to do for us in our own faith is we started to receive phone calls from, from ministries and, and nonprofits that we had connected with as I was doing research. And they said, Matt, listen, there's a child for sale on this street corner here. Can you come in and, and work with police? We know you work with police. Can you come and, and rescue her? Matt, there's this brothel with photos of children on the very back wall. And we are afraid that they're being sold. Can you come and investigate this situation? And I, I just think that it's a unique situation to find yourself in when you're a missionary, uh, you were raised Baptist, you've never been in a strip club, and all of a sudden, <laughs> sure, you know, God's like, hey, Matt, what are you going to do? And I, I sat down with my wife and I said, Laura, listen, I, I've never been in a strip club because I was a good Baptist boy. Um, and I was one of those men, I was a virgin when I got married to my wife and I was so proud of that. Um, but here we sit in this moment where there's children potentially being sold and, and no one's really looking for them. And so I went to law enforcement and they said, Matt, look, we will do this case if you will go and confirm the intelligence, if you'll go into the brothel, confirm that these photos of children on the back wall are actually that those kids are for sale for sexual services. If you do that, then yes, of course, we'll get a warrant and then we'll, we'll mobilize a rescue effort. And it was such a big ask for me for all those reasons I'd mentioned. I was, I was great, raised conservative and, you know, this isn't, this isn't typical missionary behavior. Um, but my, my wife and I sat down and, and uh, basically came to this place of saying, well, if this were our daughters, we have two daughters, if this were one of our kids and we had been deceived as parents and we had sent our children off with the hopes of a good job and a good future only to discover we doomed them to a life of slavery, what would we not do to recover our kids? And so Laura looked at me so sweetly. She said, Matt, of course, I don't want you to be exposed to whatever happens in the brothel but our marriage is strong enough to deal with those issues. Of course you have to go for the sake of this child. We, we have to rise up on behalf of this child. So she sent me and that, and that was kind of a requirement for me was, look, I'll do this work, babe, but I can't do this alone. You're going to have to, 
to agree to it and send me. I don't want to go risk my life or take on the dangers of the underworld and come back and be punished, you know, in our marriage for whatever exposures I may have had. And she said, no, of course, we'll, we'll work through that. If we can't work through our own sexuality within our marriage to allow you to go rescue a child, then, then what, what are we doing here? <laughs> you know? Um, so I went and I, I went undercover my first time, 2012, January. And uh, we were able to gather intelligence from multiple brothels selling uh, children and also selling adults, delivered what we now call a target package to law enforcement for action, for rescue operations. And I'll tell you, Alan, the, the cops were just blown away. Mm. The cops were like, Matt, you don't understand. We, we never get intelligence like this from the other side of the, of the black curtain. So are you, are you posing as in that case, a buyer? Yeah. Well, yes. A customer, a John, we call them Johns. You know, these brothels have, I don't know, 20 to 50 men in them. Some, some of the red light communities have, you know, 50 brothels on the alley. And so I'm one of maybe six, 700 men on the street. And they all look like me. Most of them are foreigners. And uh, there's also Chinese and Japanese men that fly into this part of the world. So that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm just acting like I'm a buyer. I'm, I'm having a beer. I'm talking to everybody and talking to the traffickers, the girls, the mama-sans, the papa-sans, trying to get information on, is this girl for sale and how much and what can I do with her? And then we collect that intelligence and we share that with law enforcement. So the police were thrilled. They were thrilled that I did that. And they said, Matt, look, this is amazing. We've never, never had this before. And I just sat down with Laura, my wife, and I said, babe, look, uh, this was not, you know, easy, I guess, but it also wasn't very difficult. And if there's children that are being raped every night and I can impact that, I feel like we should. And she totally agreed with me. So I was deputized into the Thai Royal Police and started to conduct undercover operations in region five and in region two of Thailand. Um, and we started to find children being sold and we, we eventually built a small uh, investigations team comprised of retired special forces operatives and civilians. And we started to just kind of map the city and find kids and, you know, being sold and delivered that to law enforcement. Law enforcement eventually said, look, this is great, but we want you to wear covert recording devices so that we can see what you see. And we started to do that. We started to build out best practices. And, and then we started to expand into India and the United States and, and parts of Latin America. And uh, over the last 10 years, we've rescued uh, right around 1,500 children. Wow. And arrested 600 traffickers and pedophiles through, through this activity. Wow. Um, it's been overwhelming and remarkable and incredibly challenging and difficult. It's been depressing and uh, amazing. And, and I think my idea of God, my faith in God, it's, it's only grown. Uh, the strength of my marriage has only grown. Um, and this is kind of that activity that all your friends tell you not to do. You know, you're like, Hey, let's go rescue kids. They're like, are you crazy? That's dangerous. And, you know, uh, how are you going to handle the sexuality of these environments? And all, all these questions, all these like roadblocks to the mission. And God has just 
been faithful to uh, navigate those with us, guide us through those in love. Um, and I tell people a lot, you know, man's justice tends to be violent, but God's justice tends to be loving. And there's this, there's this truth about the brothel that I love, and it's the most honest place in the world. Almost no one's pretending. Hmm. Everyone's broken. It's as plain as day. They're trying to sell sex, but it's a facade that's so easy to see past. These are hollowed out, broken individuals, everyone. The girls, the victims, they're, they're totally broken. The traffickers are broken. The Johns who are buying girls for sex are broken. And we get to be this light in a dark place. And we get to disrupt the systematic abuse of girls and put people in prison, uh, which is what they need. I think that's a loving act. Um, they need disruption in their life. They've lost their way. And so that's kind of my story. And, I, and I'd love to just ask you, Alan, you know, what questions you have. I'm an open book and I know I'm, I've already taken a lot of time. <laughs> no, man, that is, that is incredible. Mind blowing. Even just the, the steps of faith along the way. I'm curious for you, um, maybe other than people who either misunderstand or, you know, maybe even lovingly say you shouldn't be doing this. What are some of the other obstacles that you have faced along the way, Matt? Um, yeah, I would say from a leadership perspective, I've faced so many, um, because you're trying to build a nonprofit right from the ground up, which is full of people who want to see victims of trafficking rescued and, and traffickers arrested. So they join you in your mission. Um, but just like all nonprofits, we don't always have enough money to pay, you know, the, the highest salaries and you're inviting people along. Um, and so there's turnover, you, you know, people come and go and that just running the company and building the company, the systems of business have been absolutely exhausting. Um, in addition to trying to design an effective program of identifying victims and rescuing them. So, you know, I tell people a lot when I coach and train, you know, leaders of young nonprofits, they're tasked with two impossible things design an effective program that actually brings change and then also go raise the money to do it. Those are very yeah. different disciplines. So hard. It's, it's rare to have the skill set to do both. Um, so I think that those challenges over the years have been so difficult. You know, I'm 10 years into this uh, work and I would say the Exodus Road as an organization has is probably in its fourth or fifth major iteration. And, you know, we're talking about right now COVID and the impact of COVID on our nonprofits and on our ministries. And there is this requirement uh, when you're a leader to, to have this agility to read the market, read the situation and pivot, be, be very agile with our leadership and forecast things. And so I think that those challenges are, they're never ending. And I, I don't feel alone in that. I feel like that's pretty common, but um, I've had to grow up so much. You, you would think that the challenge of this work would be the brothel, <laughs> um, but raising money and just uh, being a voice of leadership in this space, it requires so much energy and effort. Uh, and there's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of opinions about human trafficking too. And 
some of them are good and some of them are just pretty misguided, um, oversimplified. It's a very complex justice issue. And so we have to be complex in our solutions. It's not simple. So those are just a few things um, on the leadership side, I think, uh, have been unique. You know, it's a global nonprofit we run, so we've got all kinds of cross-cultural issues uh, that we have to navigate. But uh, on the whole, it's a, it's a ministry worth, worth its effort. And I'm very thankful that I've had the honor and privilege to be a part of it. Well, Matt, we have a lot of change makers listening to this and leaders burning um, with a passion to do something, right? For their lives to matter, they wouldn't be listening to this. What would you say to that leader that has a burning passion to help some cause in the world but doesn't know the way forward? Wow. Um, I get. I actually get this question a lot. <laughs> And what I like to say to people is don't wait for someone to tell you what to do. Discover your passion with the Lord and just take a step forward. It doesn't have to be three steps, just one step. For me, it was this idea that I had this passion for people to be free. I did not know the way and no one was about to tell me how to do it. I had to figure it out. And I I like this old adage that God doesn't steer a parked car. Hmm. We have to be moving forward in a direction by faith. God requires faith. He invites us into faith. And if he puts this passion to do something in your heart, you have to work with uh, the Lord through prayer to figure out what it is that you're passionate about. And then you have to have the courage to take a step forward, knowing that that first step is going to feel foolish. And Laura and I felt so foolish, especially when we told people what we were passionate about and they would say, well, don't do that. That's stupid. That's foolish. People don't say that anymore uh, because God's been faithful and God is faithful, but it takes faith and it takes courage to take those first few steps in a direction. Um, For us, you know, I started to have meetings with law enforcement, with other practitioners in the space. And I just started to do a lot of learning. A lot of research is incredibly humbling. Um, and then we decided, we, we fell into designing a concept of freedom based on supporting a weakness in law enforcement systems that happened to be highly effective. <laughs> mm. um, but at no point did I ever feel like, oh, I have the answer today that I will go implement tomorrow. It was, I'd have no idea what the answer is today, but I'm going to start loving people in this concerted effort in this direction. I'm going to follow God into the brothel because I feel called there and we'll start freeing people and innovate the solution at the same time. We'll constantly be getting better and better and better. And so I just encourage people that way. A lot of times I feel like we get paralyzed because a problem is so complicated and we feel like we have to have a total solution before we start loving people. And I just encourage people, no, it's way simpler than that. You're never going to arrive at a perfect solution to an evolving problem. Be the kingdom. Go and be. Sit amongst them. Hold their hand. Know their name. I've been in over 2,000 brothels in uh, four or five continents around the world. I've held thousands of hands. And honestly, guys, it's those hands that I've held that God has used to inform the trajectory of our company more than any great idea I had in my office. It was being in the slums. It was getting someone with urine on them, that smell next to me 
that sparked my compassion and ignited my spirit to fall in love with them. And then God shows up in those moments and gives you commands, gives you dreams and visions. I would pray a lot, Alan, uh, a couple years ago, you know, God, I have all these dreams, but I don't have the money. And I felt like God said to me, well, that's fine because the money's not your responsibility. Matt, take steps of faith towards the dreams and visions I've planted in your heart and I will supply or I won't. That is not up to you. Just continue to love the poor, to show up, to be present. And you will become as large of an effort as I want you to become. But I'm happy that you're simply following me. That, that's really this thing I feel. I think nowadays, especially with social media, there's all this competition to be the biggest and the best and the smartest and the most attractive and yep. have the whitest teeth and the best genes on your stage as you're preaching. And I'm just telling you guys, that is not a kingdom mentality. God doesn't care about any of this stuff. God's already the biggest and the best, the most beautiful. God's already got the best teeth. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, He's not inviting us to that. He's inviting us to bring his kingdom into the darkest corners of the world. Um, but it does cost us. It takes courage and faith, and it will be risky. Um, uh, the, the idea that, 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 that God wants us to be wealthy Christians is really not a Christian idea. Um, and so I'm not saying that we have to be poor either, but we need to spend ourselves on behalf of the poor. Um, so anyway, I don't know if that's motivating to people, uh, but I do know a lot of people trying to do good in the world get paralyzed. Uh, and I just would encourage you to, to, to drop those shackles of, of wanting the comfort of having all the answers before you reach out to, to love the poor. Those answers will come. God will part the Red Sea for you, but it might cost you the risk of your life to step into those deep waters in faith. So good. Matt, this has been so helpful. We could talk for hours. Maybe we'll have you back on as well. I have a lot of other questions and I look forward to chatting more in the future. Um, a lot of people's hearts have been pricked for uh, slavery today and sex trafficking specifically. How can folks get involved in this cause as a whole? And how can folks partner and support with the Exodus Road and what you guys are doing? Yeah, thanks. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you three answers real briefly. Number one, uh, becoming an advocate is really, really important it kind of feels cheesy to say that, like, you know, the missionary who says, uh, I'm going to ask you for prayers before I ask you for money to send me. That's kind of what it feels like. Sure. But being an advocate is so important because these, these girls and boys trapped in slavery, they have no voice, right? They can't advocate for themselves. And so for us here with, with freedom to say, hey, I care about this issue. Um, people should be aware of this issue. We at the Exodus Road have ways that you can do that. We have a volunteer section, an advocacy section on our website, theexodusroad.com. It's free. We don't charge for it. We give you practical solutions of how you can leverage your power here today uh, to be an advocate for someone trapped in slavery. That's option one. Option two is to donate financially to rescue efforts. We have a program called Search and Rescue. 100% of donations goes to rescuing victims of human trafficking here in the United States, as well as uh, Thailand, India, parts of Latin America. I keep saying Latin America, I can't say out loud the country because we have an agreement with various governments sure. where we're not allowed to disclose where we are. That's the search and rescue program. Any amount helps, you get live updates of our rescue operations for joining the program. 
uh, through your phone. We can give you text messages. And there's one last way you can, can be a part of what we do in rescuing victims of trafficking. It's not for everyone. It's to join Delta Team, which is our American-based investigations force we deploy all around the world to support law enforcement and our other investigation units in extracting victims of trafficking. We have a role to play uh, in the evidence gathering and rescue uh, of, of kids all over the world here in the United States. So you can go to our website. It, only about 30% uh, who apply for that role actually pass. It's pretty difficult. We put you through a lot of psyche valves and training to see how you respond to trauma. Uh, but our Delta team is a very effective force in the world to rescue victims of trafficking. Our average rescue costs $1,000 per child globally. And we're seeing those dollars come down as our law enforcement partner partnerships uh, become more and more entrenched. Um, but it costs us $1,000 to rescue a child today. Um, and I think that that's pretty amazing. So uh, th those are the three ways I would say, hey, if you care about trafficking, if that's where you feel God's calling you, those are three, three real options for you to consider. Um, and I would love for you to consider those. Matt, thank you. Thank you so much for what you do and the whole team at the Exodus Road, all those people who are literally heading into brothels, caring for these girls after the fact, doing paperwork, volunteering. Thank you to, to you and your organization. Incredible. Thanks for coming on and sharing your story. Absolutely. Thanks, Alan.